You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. It's great to see all of you today. Happy Easter to everyone. Uh, it's great to worship our, our risen Lord together. Uh, the resurrection uh, actually impacts every day of our life, but, but on this particular Sunday, uh, we give it special attention, uh, which I think is fitting. Uh, I've been telling my girls all week, hey, girls, this Sunday is the Super Bowl of our faith. And they're like, Dad, does everything have to be about football? And I'm like, most things, yes. It, it helps me understand uh, how things work. Um, I, think, I think as Christians, uh, it, it's instructive for us to, to look at the interactions that Jesus had with his disciples after his resurrection. And here's why. Because I think that the post-resurrection intentions of Jesus towards his first disciples are the, are, are the intentions he has toward us. I want you to listen to John's account of this first encounter that Jesus had with them. This is from John chapter 20. It says, on the evening of that first day of the week, it was a Sunday, when the disciples were together with the doors locked because of fear, so they were scared to death, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, peace be with you. After that, after he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw him, and again, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. Don't you just love that? That... The, the, that's the, the first thing he says to them is peace. He doesn't say, why are you guys hiding? Where were you guys? You bailed on me. He doesn't say, what's the mission plan? Let's get this thing going. He says, peace. It's the very thing they long for. They need the most, but they can't give themselves. He speaks it to them. That's the first thing Jesus says to them. Then listen to the last thing he does for them before he ascends into heaven. So this is many days later. This is in Luke 24. Then Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. He blessed them. Like for the rest of their days, they would remember that the, the first thing Jesus said to them when they saw him risen from the dead was peace. And the last thing he did for them was to bless them. The, the risen Lord's intention toward his people is to bless them. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean he's going to give us everything we want in life? Good health all the time a sweet house, success in our career. Is that what blessing is? Not necessarily. Possibly, but not necessarily. I would say not even probably. When you think about the lives of all God's people all over the earth, throughout all of history, blessing is not really just about checking off our wish list. When we say that Jesus' intention is to bless his people, we mean his intention is to will our good, right? He knows what's good for us. He knows what we're made for. He knows what we long for. And out of that goodness, his intent is to bless us. 
That's his posture toward us, blessing, which is fitting, I think, as we come to the end of the book of Hebrews. Some of you have not been with us for the season of Lent because you're visiting today, but we've been spending the season of Lent in this wonderful letter to the Hebrews, and we come to the end of it today, and what we come to at the end of the letter is a benediction. It's a prayer of blessing. Uh, I want you to listen to this prayer again. Open your Bible if you have one, or pull it up on your phone if you can, to, to Hebrews 13. And leave it open there because we, we're going to spend some time in these two little verses. This is one of the most beautiful prayers in all of Scripture. It's a prayer of blessing. Hebrews 13, verse 20. Now, may the God of peace... Isn't it interesting that this prayer starts where Jesus started with his disciples after the resurrection? It's like God is saying to us, hey, listen... I know you have a lot of conflict in your life. Conflict with other people, conflict with the culture, with the world, conflict within yourself. But I want you to know that because of your relationship with Jesus, you and me are good. Like, we have peace. And so start with that peace, and from that foundation, see if you can build peace in the rest of your life. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What a benediction. What a prayer of blessing. Don't you want those things to be true for your life? Isn't the, don't you want that tr- to become true in your life? Now, I want you to notice that this prayer of blessing is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus. So right at the front of the prayer, he talks about how God raised Jesus back up from the dead. And so there are a number of blessings in this prayer that are only possible because Jesus is alive. The resurrection of Jesus is like the linchpin for all those other blessings. We can't have those other blessings if Jesus is not resurrected from the dead. Now, I want us to look at three blessings that we see here in this little prayer. There's probably more than three, uh, but it's Easter, and Jesus was raised on the third day, so three blessings, all right? We're going to look at three of them uh, in, this, in this little prayer. These blessings, listen, they're good for us. We're made for these things. We, we actually long for these things, right? and they're only possible because Jesus is alive. Here's the first blessing. Because Jesus is alive, we are blessed with pastoral care. We're blessed with pastoral care, meaning we have a shepherd who cares for us. The word for pastor and the word for shepherd are the same word. Did you see that at the beginning of verse 20? Look at it. Hebrews 13, 20. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. When it says sheep there, it's talking about us. We are the sheep. All throughout the Bible, God calls his people sheep. Now, what is God trying to communicate by using that metaphor again and again and again? I think first and foremost, he's trying to communicate that we are dependent creatures. Like if God wanted to emphasize our independence, I suppose he would have referred to us as a different animal, right? A more solitary, independent, loner type animal, like a rhino, a honey badger, it would be pretty cool to be God's honey badger, right? 
But that's not what he calls us. He calls us sheep. And what he means by that is, y'all and me aren't independent. We're made to exist in a flock. We're made to be shepherded. Like always and forevermore, we're dependent on another. It's the consistent witness of Scripture all through the Scripture. Isaiah, what does he say? You are constantly straying like sheep. Jesus looks out on the multitude and he has compassion on them. Why does it say in Matthew 9? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. The apostle Peter, he describes our conversion to Christ in this language. Listen to what he says. He says, you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Did you know that even in eternity, we will be sheep in need of a shepherd? Revelation chapter 7, verse 16. They will never again be hungry or thirsty. They will never be scorched by the heat of the sun. Why? For the lamb on the throne will be their shepherd. I love that play on words. The lamb will be our shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will never be a time ever, ever, ever when you don't need a shepherd to protect you, to to provide for you, to guide you. Like we're made for that. Which is one of the reasons God has always appointed human shepherds to care for his people. See, God could have cared for us in all sorts of ways, but he designed it such that he would give us human shepherds to lead us, to care for us, right? In the Old Testament, God's leaders are called shepherds. In the New Testament, God appoints pastors to lead and to shepherd the church. Problem is, uh, all of these pastors uh, have major flaws, right? They have weaknesses, they have blind spots, they have insecurities. Sometimes in the morning, I'll look in the mirror. My hair is going all kinds of weird ways. I've got like rack lines on my face. And I'm like, you're the pastor? <laughs> Dude, you're weak, right? Pastors are filled with weaknesses. They're also filled with sin. And that's where it gets really problematic. Because sometimes pastors really hurt people with their sin. You almost can't go a week without reading about another pastor who's fallen in immorality, who's abused their power of influence, or who has manipulated their flock for their own gain. Some of you have been wounded in the past by church leaders, by pastors, or you've seen other people, maybe your family, wounded by pastors. And so you get real suspicious when you hear hear talk about shepherds, because you've seen shepherds fail in their calling. I want you to know that God is upset by that. He's not upset that you feel upset. He's upset with you. Listen to what God says in Ezekiel chapter 34 to self-centered shepherds. He says, woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You have not strengthened the weak. You have not healed the sick. You have not bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays. You have not searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, shepherds, and I will hold you accountable for my flock. It's rough. But then a few verses later, 
in Ezekiel 34, God makes this wonderful promise. He promises to send one shepherd who will not fail in his calling as shepherd. This is what he says. He says, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Listen, you need to know timeline-wise that David had been dead for like 400 years when Ezekiel wrote this. How is David going to be their shepherd? Well, one would come in the family tree of David who would perfectly shepherd God's flock. Who is that person? We find out in Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13 today tells us that Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. That means he's the preeminent one. That means he's the top shepherd. He surpasses them all. He's the best shepherd of them all. Jesus is the great shepherd who's been brought again from the dead, never to die again. Do you know what that means for us? That means he lives for all time to give us pastoral care. It's it's a wonderful blessing. That means that Psalm 23, you can read it and pray it personally for you. You can say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Do you look to Jesus in that way? Like, do you acknowledge your ongoing dependence on him and that everything you need comes from him? We always and forevermore will be dependent beings, creatures. About three months ago, my, uh, our family uh, got a dog. And this was actually a shock to a lot of people that we got a dog. Um, I'm not sure why. Uh, maybe it's because we had said repeatedly, we will never get a dog under any circumstances. Uh, but we got this rescue dog, and we named him Woodrow. Uh, and if you think he's named after a character in Lonesome Dove, you would be right. Um, and so we got Woodrow, and Woodrow, he's a good boy. We really like him. He's not perfect. He's got some issues, uh, but he's a good boy. Here's the thing we didn't expect about Woodrow. He's actually teaching us about our relationship with God. Uh, one of the things that my wife noticed early on is that Woodrow is always paying attention to your hand. He wants to know what's in your hand. One time I had a paper towel and he was like, all right, what's it? what is that? What do you got in your hand there? What are you going to do with your hand? Are you going to feed me with your hand? Are you going to pet me with your hand? Are you going to hurt me with your hand? He instinctively knows that everything he needs for life is going to come from our hands. But the issue is he's pretty skittish. He's a rescue dog. We don't know his past. Maybe he's been hurt by human hands. So he is dependent, but he's suspicious, right? He's skeptical. How do you view the hand of your shepherd, the the great shepherd? Do you know that everything you need for life will come from him, that he will provide for you and protect you and guide you? Do you trust him? Are you sometimes suspicious of his hand? Like maybe he will lead you in harm's way or hurt you in some way. I want you to know, here's why you can trust the hand of Jesus as your great shepherd. Because John 10 says he's the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So when you look to the hand of your great shepherd and you're like, hey, what's in your hand? What do you got there? What do you see? You see wounded hands, right? Stretched out to you. He ever lives 
to, to care for you, and he always has the scars as proof that you can trust him. He's not coming to hurt you. He was hurt for you. He's your great shepherd. Because Jesus is alive, we are blessed with pastoral care. Here's another thing we're blessed with because he's alive. We're blessed with permanence. Permanence. Look at verse 20 again. It says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. So we have in Jesus an eternal covenant. We have a permanent relationship. We're made for that, right? Don't you just sense that, that deep down you long for a permanent relationship? The hard part about that is we can't hardly imagine it because all of our relationships, even our best relationships, are temporary, right? They're impermanent for all kinds of reasons. One of the reasons they're impermanent is just because of mobility, Did you know that the average American will move 11 to 12 times in in, in his or her lifetime? I'm actually way beyond that. I've moved like 19 times uh, in my life. We're a mobile people. We we really feel that in a city like Austin, don't we? Because people are always coming and always going, always coming and always going. Our little church is seven and a half years old. Did you know that in the life of our church, we have lost 168 adult members not just people who came and attended our church, members of our church, and most of those have left us because they've moved to outside of Austin. So, so we joke on our staff team, and we say everybody in our church is moving, <laughs> but we're not joking. When we meet you, we're like, hi, nice to meet you. When are you moving? <laughs> That's a lot of goodbyes, isn't it? Some of you have felt those goodbyes really deeply because some of your best friends have moved away. Mobility causes us to brace for impermanence in relationships. Another reason relationships are impermanent is unfaithfulness. And when I say unfaithfulness, I don't just mean adultery or cheating. I mean that sometimes, maybe oftentimes, we don't keep faith with one another in in, in marriages or in friendships. Like long-term loyalty in relationships is actually pretty rare. You know, we get tired of each other, we bail. We hurt each other, we bail. We drift apart for various reasons. I read somewhere that the average friendship lasts about seven years. And, and, and some of that is due to proximity and mobility, but some of it's just due that we're not real committed to each other. 40% of marriages in, in, the, in the U.S. will end in divorce. And, and those last on average about eight years. It's no wonder that we brace for the impermanence of relationships. Even our best relationships are impermanent, impermanent because we are impermanent. They don't last forever because we don't last forever. So it's not just mobility, it's not just infidelity, it's mortality, isn't it? I mean, I love my marriage. Amy and I have been married for almost 24 years. She's my best friend. When that relationship started 25-something years ago, I thought it would last forever. I was convinced that it was permanent. You know why? Because I felt invincible, right? But like I said, nowadays I just glance in the mirror and I'm convinced that I'm not invincible. I got pains that I can't explain right, as I get close to 50. And, and those are not going to get better, probably. One of my favorite songwriters, Jason Isbell, wrote a song last year called If We Were Vampires. And it's about the reality 
that our best love relationships, even a faithful marriage, won't last forever. And the chorus of this song is just haunting to me. It's, it, it makes my heart ache. Listen to this chorus. It's knowing that this can't go on forever. Likely, one of us will have to spend some days alone. Maybe we'll get 40 years together, but one day I'll be gone, or one day you'll be gone. Right? So even our best selves, our healthiest selves, our most committed selves, cannot promise a permanent relationship. We can't. Which is what makes this promise of God of an eternal covenant such good news in this verse. What is the eternal covenant? God sums it up in Jeremiah 32, verses 38 and 40. Here's how he describes this eternal covenant. God says, they will be my people and I will be their God. That's what a covenant is. I will bind myself to a particular people. And then he says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. And I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. Isn't that incredible? God ensures that he is never going to bail on us, but he also ensures that we're never going to bail on him. That's what the eternal covenant is. Now, how was the eternal covenant secured for us? Well, Hebrews 13 says the covenant is established by blood, right? Every week when we take communion, we repeat the words of Jesus. We hold up the cup and, and we say that Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. In, either, in other words, my blood is shed to secure for you the promises of the covenant. How do we know that it worked? How do we know that his blood was sufficient? How do we know that his blood ratified the covenant? In other words, made it valid. Jesus was raised from the dead. I want you to see something really cool in verse 20. Look at verse 20. That phrase at the end of the verse that says, by the blood of the eternal covenant, it's connected to the the, the first phrase about God bringing Jesus up from the dead. So you could could read it like this. You could flip the sentence. and, And this actually would make more sense of the sentence. You could say, by the blood of the eternal covenant, the God of peace raised Jesus from the dead, meaning the blood of the eternal covenant is the reason God raised Jesus from the dead. Like, God approved of Jesus' sacrifice for our sins, so he raised Jesus from the dead. It's like Jesus wrote a check to pay for the sins of the world, and he signed it in his own blood. I realize we don't write checks anymore, right? But this is what happened. Jesus wrote the check for the sins of the whole world, signed it in his own blood, and the resurrection is a sign that it cashed, that it cleared. Jesus had sufficient funds in his account available to pay for the sins of the whole world. And the resurrection is proof of that, is what the author is saying here. What does this mean for us who have faith in Jesus? It means we have a permanent relationship with God, secured by the blood of Jesus, guaranteed by the resurrection. Nothing can shake that relationship. Nothing can alter it. No mobility on my part. No infidelity on my part. Not even my own mortality can shake the permanence of my relationship with God. We are the covenant people of God, the eternal covenant people with God, and we will dwell with God forever. And guess what? We will dwell with him in resurrected bodies 
like Jesus has. We read about this in 1 Corinthians 15. In other words, eternity doesn't mean we're going to float around heaven on clouds in di- as disembodied spirits with harps singing kumbaya to each other for eternity. Aren't you thankful to know that that is not eternity? Eternity means that we are going to live real, robust, permanent lives in new bodies on a new earth with the resurrected Lord forever and ever. We have an eternal covenant relationship with God. Because Jesus is alive, we're blessed with pastoral care, we're blessed with permanence, and then lastly and briefly, we're blessed with something else we need, and that is we're blessed with power. We're blessed with power. Look again at verse 20. Now may the God of peace, and I'll skip to verse 21, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be, whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. To do the will of God, to please God, doesn't that sound appealing? If I were to ask you, how many of y'all want to please God with your life? None of you would say, not me, I don't. No, I want to disappoint God. I want to just frustrate him. And while I'm at it, I just want to run my life into the side of a mountain, just make a total wreck of it. None of us would say that, would we? Why? Because we're made to please God. In our original design, we want to do the will of God, but so often we don't. And I would say left to ourselves, we won't. We can't. Do you ever feel that tension of wanting to do the will of God and even knowing what it is, but then you don't? I mean, I will some mornings, I will have devotional times that are extraordinarily good. It's, these are rare mornings, but I'll have a quiet time that's just, I feel like God has come down and is speaking to me directly. And I'm getting all this revelation and I'm, I'm learning stuff and I'm fired up for Jesus. And, and I feel like I'm going to leave and my face is going to be glowing with the Shekinah glory as I leave because I've been to the mountaintop and God is going to come and get me on chariots of fire and take me into the, into the rest of the day to serve Jesus. And I'm ready to serve him. And I get up from my chair and I go in the kitchen and I put my coffee cup in the dishwasher and then I go in the bedroom and I say something really selfish to my wife and all of a sudden we're in an argument and I'm like, (laughs) what happened, man? I wanted to do the word of God, the will of God. I wanted to please him, but I didn't. And into that tension that we all feel. God speaks this incredible promise in verse 21. Look at verse 21. He promises that he himself will equip us with everything we need to do his will. Like he'll never ask us to do something that he doesn't give us what we need to do it. And that word equip means to restore something that's broken to its original purpose, to its intended purpose purpose. It's like setting a bone that's broken back in place. So when it says that God's going to equip us, it it means that he's taking our brokenness and healing us. He's actually forming us and making us into what we ought to be. It gives us everything we need to do his will. But that's not all. Look what else it says in verse 21. It also says that God is working in us, God himself, to do the things that please him. 
In other words, he's not just equipping us, giving us what we need. He's actually in us, giving us the power to do his will, giving us the power to please him, actually giving us the power to live like Jesus. Why? Because Jesus always pleased the Father. Jesus always did the will of the Father. Now, how does God do this? How does God work in us that which is pleasing in his sight? Well, look what it says. Through Jesus Christ. So he does this through the resurrected Lord. Jesus is alive. And according to what the scripture says is, we are joined to him by faith. And so now he is in us by his spirit living through us so that we can please God. What a blessing that is. Now here's a simple illustration of how this, what this might look like. A five-year-old little boy wants to please his father. But he doesn't always know how to do what the father asks. One day the father asks him to tie his shoes. And the little boy says, I can't. I don't know how to tie my shoes. Now what does a good father do it at that point? He doesn't say, well, too bad, figure it out, man. Right? No, he equips his little boy with instructions. He says, first you take one lace and you put it over the second lace. Then you loop the first lace underneath the second lace and you pull it tight. And the little boy's like, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm not getting this. I'm not going to be able to remember this. Then what does the good father do? He comes around behind the son and he takes the son's hands in his own hands. And together they both pick up the laces. And as the little boy's hands relax in the hands of the father and trust the hands of the father, they begin to tie the shoes together. And the father is not just equipping the son with instruction. He's actually working with the son in the son to do that which is pleasing to him. That's what we have in the risen Lord. When Jesus was baptized in Mark chapter 1, It says that the heavens were torn open and there was a voice and it was the voice of the Father. And you know what the Father said? He said, you are my son and with you I am well pleased. Did you know that if you were a Christian, you are joined to Jesus by faith and so now you hear that same voice say that same thing. It's like the Father is raining down pleasure on Jesus, and you and I are so close to Jesus that we're getting soaked with the same pleasure. We're hearing the pleasure of God because we're joined to Jesus, and we can please Him because of our union with Jesus. It's an incredible blessing. Because Jesus is alive, we are blessed with pastoral care. We have a good shepherd. We are, we're, we're blessed with permanence. We have an eternal covenant relationship and we are blessed with power. Power to actually do God's will and to please him with our lives. The book of Hebrews ends with six words. This is the last sentence in Hebrews. Grace be with all of you. Grace be with all of you. And we know that grace is a gift. And so all the promises we've been learning about in the book of Hebrews actually come to us as a gift. Can't earn them. Can't buy them. You can only receive them. How do you receive them? By faith. 
by trusting in Jesus, the one who was crucified, the one who was buried, the one who's risen again to forever bless us. Let's praise him and thank him. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.